Hey, welcome to the space usually occupied by the Scrum, GBH News' politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is on sabbatical from now through early November because we're putting out a limited-run TV show on Boston's mayoral election, Boston's Race into History. You can see it Fridays at 7 p.m. on GBH Channel 2 or find it at GBH News' YouTube channel. But we are also putting audio versions of that show here, since some people prefer listening to watching. In this episode, we look at how Michelle Wu and Anissa Asabi-George would tackle the addiction, homelessness, and mental health crisis at Mass and Cass if they're elected. We talk with former Boston City Council candidate Domingos DeRosa, Marla Smith of the South End Roxbury Community Partnership, and Catherine D'Amato, who heads the Greater Boston Food Bank, and we hear from the candidates themselves. But first, Soraya Wintersmith and I size up what's been happening on the campaign trail, including Wu's big endorsement from Ayanna Presley and Asabi George's sharpening attacks on her opponent. Take a listen. Tonight on Boston's Race into History, call it what you will, Mass and Cass, Methadone, Mile, the area at the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard has become a painful emblem of the city's growing problems with homelessness, addiction, and violence. Both of the final mayoral candidates have laid out plans to tackle many of the root issues, and in a few minutes, we'll hear about some of that and what the people who live and work in the area have to say about all of it. But first, let's get a roundup of the week in mayoral news, including some big endorsements from GBH's Boston City Hall reporter, Soraya Wintersmith. Soraya, good to see you. Hey, Adam. Since we last talked, there have been some big endorsers coming out for Michelle Wu. She got acting mayor Kim Janey, last weekend. And then this morning, I actually learned about this, I think, in a, a text from you. She got the nod from Ayanna Presley, her former Boston City Council colleague and current congresswoman. Of these two big endorsements, which one do you think is more beneficial for Wu? I think we got to get out on the campaign trail and ask voters which one is more influential or which one sways them more. In the case of Janie, I think even though she did not win and emerge from the preliminary stage of the race, she did earn a lot of votes in precincts where we can infer by census data a lot of black and brown people live, and so we can infer that black and brown voters casts ballots for her, and she is doing her best to try and encourage them to turn out in that uh, endorsement announcement, though, she said that she was aware there was a lot of disappointment and she's aware of the possibility that voters will be disaffected and not show up. So she's trying to keep them from doing that. I think in the case of Presley, when I think about 2018 and how far ahead she was of the longtime incumbent Mike Capuano that she beat out, she's very popular yeah. and she hasn't faced a challenge since. So there's power there, I think. It'll be interesting to see uh, how much she comes out on the campaign trail for Michelle Wu, which I would think could be a huge boost before the final. Michelle Wu also was endorsed by the Arroyos, by Felix D. Arroyo, the former Boston City Councilor, now uh, Suffolk Register of Probate, and his son, Ricardo Arroyo, That's the right. Boston City Councilor. They are probably the best known Latino political family in Massachusetts. But one possible endorser is holding off. Andrea Campbell, again, Wu's council colleague and Anissa Sabi George's council colleague, former mayoral candidate herself, she is saying in a number of different venues that she wants concrete 
actionable commitments from the two finalists before she decides if she's going to endorse and who she's going to endorse. Here's how she put it on Greater Boston, talking to Jim Rowdy. I want folks to, if I endorse, for example, to make specific commitments that are tangible and measurable to the folks that supported me, particularly those in our black and brown communities. They want specifics from the candidates on what they will actually do and how they will accomplish it and how they will measure that success. Soraya, I had thought naively, I guess, that the gap between Andrea Campbell and Anissa Asabi-George on policing and police reform was so big that it would basically be a no-brainer for her to endorse Wu. Were you surprised that she is, for now at least, uh, holding off and keeping people waiting? I don't think that's naive, given the policy gap that you mentioned. I will say yes and no about being surprised. Yes, because in the span between the preliminary election and the November 2nd general, time is short. And I would think that most folks who want their endorsement to make an impact would want to give it relatively quickly uh, on this portion of the race. No, because I think it's part of Andrea Campbell's brand to be a judicious politician who dives into the details of a thing before arriving at a judgment. And this goes to that. I think also when I think about how she was on the campaign trail, positioning herself opposite from Kim Janey frequently with her own press conferences or coming right out and criticizing decisions that Janey had made, it makes sense to me that we are seeing her once again opposite Janey. That's a really good point. Anissa Asabi-George picked up her own endorsement this past week, or at least one very notable one that I want to highlight. She got the backing of Labor's Local 223. This is former Mayor Marty Walsh's former union, another building trades endorsement for her. She's also embarked on what she is terming a, a listening tour in Boston's communities of color. And she is sharpening her criticism of Michelle Wu. In an interview on Boston Public Radio here on GBH this past week, she tried to paint Wu as, uh, to my ear, an absentee politician. Let's take a look to how Asabi George put it. I don't see Michelle in our neighborhoods, in our city, uh, the way that I am present. And, and I hear that from my city's, from our city's residents. I hear that from community members. I hear that from civic leaders. I hear that as I knock the doors. And I think that a mayor of Boston should be engaged in that way. And that is what I bring to the table in a very different way. I should note that there was a Suffolk University Boston Globe poll right before the preliminary election, which found that 12% of respondents said they had personally met Michelle Wu and 7% said they had personally met Asabi George. That being said, are there any elements of what we heard Asabi George say there that jive with things that you're hearing on the campaign trail? You know, I will say I haven't heard from regular voters that Anissa Asabi-George shows up more than Michelle Wu, but it is an observation that I have heard from political insiders that Asabi-George has this reputation for being present, visible, accessible. She'll give you her cell phone number if you see her. And I think as I'm thinking about the endorsements from the week, it kind of highlights a difference in style and strategy that I've noticed, even if it's only for this week, uh, that Michelle Wu has rolled out her endorsements with a lot of fanfare. That may be because some of them have been personal endorsements, but there have been press conferences or rallies. And then in the case of Anissa Asabi-George with the laborers local 
it just came in a press release and she's taken the majority of her time this week visiting neighborhoods of color, like you said, and she's making herself known that way. There's another thing that Asabi George mentioned on Boston Public Radio that I want to highlight because it's a dynamic I'm fascinated about in this contest. She said that voters uh, should be paying attention to the fact that Michelle Wu did not grow up in Boston, whereas she, Anissa Asabi George, did. Mm -hmm. Let's take a listen. It's relevant to me, and I think it's relevant to a lot of voters, whether or not they're born and raised in the city. She had mentioned in, you know, surrounding that, that statement, a whole bunch of experiences she's had from early childhood on, sort of getting to know Boston by living in it as she came of age. There was a poll that we did with Mass Inc. more than a year ago when it looked like it might be Marty Walsh versus Michelle Wu. And there were some striking numbers about this, this question of being from here or not from here. 63% of voters overall said it was either very important or somewhat important that the next mayor be from Boston originally. And 79% of black voters said that it was either very important or somewhat important. A caveat that Steve Cazella, the pollster, gave me at the time was, well, it's possible the respondents looked at the two likely candidates at the moment and came up with attributes that were important to them based on which candidates they preferred, sort of reasoning backwards. Still, to my eye, those are really striking numbers. Do you think this line of attack from Asabi George is going to resonate? I think it can. I think Bostonians are very proud about their native status. If you have ever gone to a coffee shop or a diner and told somebody that you're here for two years or three years, or in some cases folks have been here for 20 or 30 years, people will pat you on the back and say, oh, that's nice, but you're not a native. <laughs> so I think that it could be very powerful for voters if the caveat that Steve Cazella gave you is not the case, and voters really do think it's important uh, that someone have experience with the city and be from here and know the local flavor, then Asabi George's line of attack is a good one. There is some history here. Uh, in 2013, after the preliminary election when Asabi George and Michelle were both running uh, for the council and as uh, at-large candidates, on the night of the preliminary election, the Dorchester reporter was at Asabi George's victory party, at which she said this, I'm going to show this city how some real tail gets kicked, and I'm not going to be outdone by any girl from Chicago. In the final election, a few weeks later, Michelle Wu finished second with 18% of the vote. Anissa Asabi George finished fifth with 9% and did not make it onto the council. So I, I'm fascinated by the roots of this. I got to ask you in closing, is the endorsement that we talked about up top from Ayanna Presley going to help Michelle Wu maybe diffuse this attack from Asabi George? Because Ayanna Presley, like Michelle Wu, is not originally from around here, but she's done pretty well for herself. It certainly implies to voters that it can be done, that someone cannot be a native and still build a vibrant political career here. I think it'll be interesting to see if there is any rally behind the Presley endorsement, like you said. Does she make that explicit to people? Yeah, yeah. We'll see. It'll be fascinating to watch. Soraya, good to talk to you. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Hey, same. The scenes that play out each and every day at the intersection of Mass Ave and Milnia Cass Boulevard are so grim that it is tempting to look away. 
You can see individuals using drugs, reeling from the immediate aftermath of drug use, or just embodying the long-term physical and mental toll that addiction can take. The problems in the neighborhood have been metastasizing since 2014, when a safety warning from the state prompted the closure of a city bridge that linked individuals to vital services on Long Island in Boston Harbor. That turned Mass and Cass into the new epicenter for Boston's efforts to combat addiction and homelessness. But despite former Mayor Marty Walsh's efforts to rebrand the area as Recovery Row, bringing the fight into the heart of the city seems to have made things worse, not better. Both of Boston's mayoral candidates say that if elected, they'd work to shift the long-term geography of the battle. This is about the overlap of mental illness, substance use, and homelessness. This is a regional issue. and. I've had some conversations already with regional partners who are ready, willing to step up across different levels of government, across different municipalities. We need to all get on the same page here. We need other cities and towns to participate in providing shelter programs and pro providing detox and longer term recovery programs and providing supportive housing and wraparound services. We need help um, and we need other cities and towns to do it with us. I'm not asking for Boston. I'm not suggesting that Boston will stop doing this work. We just need help doing this work. That may be harder than it sounds, though. Case in point, the recent dust-up over a plan to shift individuals currently based at Mass and Cass to supportive housing in nearby Revere, which prompted that city's mayor, Brian Arrigo, to accuse acting mayor Janey of a lack of consultation and collaboration. So what will it take for Boston's next mayor to drive a truly regional approach to problems whose roots go far beyond the city's borders? And in the interim, how can she make life better for the people who move through Mass and Cass every day, from individuals struggling with addiction to business people to renters and homeowners? Joining me to talk it through are Domingos de Rosa, former at-large city council candidate, Catherine D'Amato, president and CEO of the Greater Boston Food Bank, and Marla Smith, an activist with the South End Roxbury Community Partnership. Thank you all for being here. And in particular, thank you because there's some leeriness right now in the medical establishment, the human services world, to weigh in on these questions in the context of the campaign. So thank you again for being willing to do that. I want to start with some comments that we got in downtown, just trying to find out how men and women who might not be in the neighborhood the way you guys are think about this problem. Let's take a look and a listen. I don't know if I have all the answers, but we need to figure out something better than just moving them around and letting them sleep in tents on the street. To be honest with you, I think there's enough uh, housing to house these people. Um, I see vacant buildings all the time. I've been in some of them. We have to be both compassionate to people who are suffering, but also understanding to the businesses and the people who live in the neighborhood. And how to find that balance is not easy. It should be. A number one, number one on the agenda, and it seemed to be a, a secret, but uh, if you come into certain communities, you could see how the people are deprived and are truly, truly abandoned. Marla Smith, let me start with you. You live right there. What kind of stuff do you experience on a daily basis? Um, the biggest impact to my neighborhood has been the safety issue. Um, it used to be a reasonably safe neighborhood to walk around in, and now we are encountering people in you know various states of hopelessness from and various states of desperation. And as a result, there's you know small scale robbery that's taking place. There's been purse snatchings, but there's also been much more serious issues, including you know stabbings and assaults. 
and you know frequently people assaulting people with all sorts of pipes and sticks and baseball bats and you know it really has just impacted the safety and security of the neighborhood for the businesses that are here and for the people who reside here and i think people forget frequently that there are actually people that live here 24 7 and i'm one of them and has it gotten worse in the last few years would you say it absolutely has i mean it's always been an industrial neighborhood um, but in the last, since the bridge closed in 2014, and most definitely in the last three years, the impact has been significant. Catherine D'Amato, what is the effect mm -hmm. of the current situation on the work that you do at the Greater Boston Food Bank? Sure. Thanks for having us. Well, the food bank serves over 600,000 people uh, throughout eastern Massachusetts, and the impact is our inability at times to get trucks in and out, and also the safety, as was already noted, by workers coming in to the facility every day, visitors, volunteers, vendors, et cetera. You know, the safety issue is what is most important to us, and safety for both those who are living on the streets and the individuals that need to come in to work and live in that neighborhood. And to your eye, Marla said that she thinks it's gotten worse in recent years. Would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. I mean, it's been just escalating very quickly. And unfortunately, it's been a problem that's been around for years. And there have been a lot of terrific people trying to work on it and put forth processes and, and ideas. And then for us, the, the safety around the tents on the sidewalks, then, then that spills into the streets and you have active people um, trying to get a 65 foot tractor trailer down there in a safe manner becomes an issue. So we have seen it really rise since early August. Domingos, you got a lot of publicity, much of it negative for bringing some needles that you had gathered in the neighborhood uh, up to Swampscott and leaving them on the sidewalk in front of Governor Baker's home. Can you describe for uh, viewers why you took that step? Well, first and foremost, I'd like to say thank you for having us. Um, you know, exercising my First Amendment on something that is uh, near and dear to me. Uh, I've been in the area for the last 44 years of my life. I've watched the area become what it is today, known as, you know, different names. We brought it to the governor's house as a group. I'm also a co-founder of the South End Roxbury Community Partnership with a group of community residents who, who are just tired and at our last wit. And, and that was one of the only way we can bring the attention to a health pandemic that the city continues to neglect. Uh, at one point, uh, city officials named it, you know, a urban legend. Uh, as you know, this is not a legend. This is, this is a breathing, living, growing community within Boston who on top of other folks who are suffering from different issues have increased the amount of suffering for not only um, individuals who are suffering from mental illness, substance use disorder and homelessness, but the community itself. Um, it's, it's a comfortability issue. Um, it's a humanity issue. And the only person in my eyes that uh, seems to have the magic wand to address this is the governor. He's the only one that can issue licenses for treatment centers across all 14 counties. Every single county in Massachusetts should be able to weigh in and bring in the resources they need for the folks who live within that county to make sure that we all are carrying the brunt of this. 
the candidates for mayor agree, as we said at the outset, that there needs to be a regional response. Also, that in the city of Boston, the response needs to be spread through different neighborhoods to fighting opioid addiction and homelessness. They disagree on a couple key points, which I want to highlight. The first is when and how to get at least some of the people based at Mass and Cass back to Long Island. Let's take a look at how they stack up on that. Here is an issue that we've talked about now as a city for six going on seven years. It would be a, at least a $100 million project, if not double that, just to construct that span in the ocean and not even the buildings on the other side of it. Let's move quickly to reallocate that scale of funding to get ferry service reactivated to the island for a recovery campus, as well as ensuring that we have supportive housing immediately. As, especially as the weather gets colder. The idea of putting people who are not well, who are actually very, very sick on a boat um, and shipping them out to an island that's not actually prepared and um, ready to receive them is, I, don't, I think is ill-advised. I do think down the road there's an opportunity to put people who are on the path to longer-term recovery on boats to get to the island, but by then the bridge is built. Marla Smith, I know you're still choosing between your mayoral uh, options as we head toward the final election. Does one of those approaches strike you as better than the other? Uh, no, in my opinion, we closed the bridge to Long Island and the problem was the bridge. The problem wasn't the buildings that are out there. Now, I realize it's been several years, but it's my understanding that the lights have been on, the heat has been on, and that there's been security out there. So I don't know how you know, what the condition of the buildings out there is. But it seems to me that living in a building that is maybe not 100% absolutely perfect is certainly better than living in a tent on the side of Southampton Street. So to me, taking the ferry approach right now or as soon as absolutely possible is, that needs to be something that's looked at immediately. Let's go to another difference between the two candidates. One of them is in favor of supervised injection sites and one of them is not. Let's hear it in their own words. So I'm opposed to supervised injection sites. I've seen them in Toronto. I've seen them in Vancouver. I talked to the group that was working towards them in Philadelphia. And they certainly provide a benefit for a moment, but the dollars that are required to invest in one supervised injection site, I think should be utilized for other support services. Plus, through countless studies, for them to be truly impactful to the people who are struggling, we need many of them because we do know through the behaviors of someone dealing with substance use disorder, they're not traveling more than an eighth to a quarter of a mile to access that site. So to have, and what Toronto has is 60, and Toronto has a population similar to the size of Boston. I am for taking every possible step that we can to save lives. And it's been documented from the healthcare side, from medical professionals, from those who are in the public health sphere that we can save lives this way. Now, it is a specific conversation when it comes to siting and access uh, that needs to fit into the city's larger citywide plan about how we can ensure access is not concentrated just in one particular part of the city. Domingos de Rosa, I know you've had to clean up needles, among other places, on fields where kids you coach practice football. Uh, as you listen to the two candidates on the supervised injection site question, do you like what either one of them is saying? Well, I giggle because, again, you know, we haven't exhausted what we've been using. Uh, Boston is one of the only Suffolk, uh, excuse me, counties that have methadone and suboxone clinics. So how about let's exploit that before we open up a new Pandora's box? Um, from what I've seen, the needle exchange program needs to be revised. 
Um, the ordinance that were put out in 1991 doesn't seem to fit today's bill. Uh, I think we should exhaust all measures um, to get people to treatment, but right now we shouldn't be opening new doors um, that we have no clue where we're gonna wind up. Um, from what I see, it's not going to work um, because again, it's an open drug market. Uh, as long as the substance is illegal and it's not controlled and given by a professional, a, a doctor, a medical profession, it's gonna be the same old, uh, you know, bad batch circulating amongst the community who's gonna cause us to have, you know, uptick in overdoses because, you know, people think Narcan is going to be a safety net forever, but after your fourth or fifth dose of Narcan, uh, does your body continue to be immune? Uh, how much breaking down of your body does it create? So there's other medical issues um, that are going to occur. And also, I'd like to add to that the fact that, you know, the reason why we're in this opioid pandemic is because of our professionals, our medical professionals over-prescribing opioid pills to get us to this point where, you know, now the choice of drug is fentanyl. I should say just briefly, my understanding of the way supervised injection sites would work is that you would have people using under the supervision of a medical professional with health care available to them if they overdose. But at this point, it is still conjectural. Catherine D'Amato. Oh, go ahead, Domingos. I see you opening your mouth. Yeah, and I'll get you're absolutely right. right. That is, that is the, the, the characteristic of what's going to happen. But, you know, we who are here witnessing this day in, day out, you know, when folks are, are going through their cycle of, of, um, of being high, you know, there's a part where these individuals are not coherent. Where are we going to put them? Are they just going to, you know, use and then place the outside on the sidewalk? And then, of course, you know, the drugs. Who's going to provide the drugs? Are we going to allow drug dealers to set up shop across the street from a safe injection site? Uh, are we going to continue to see what we see on Atkinson Street? Uh, because that is what it was. The comfort station was just an open drug market with a safe injection site with a, with a, with a cozy name. It points, wasn't anything besides that. Points taken. Catherine, I want to give you the last word here. Whatever, pardon me, whoever the next mayor of Boston is, what would you suggest she do to make things better as quickly as possible for those of you, again, who live and work in the area and for the people who are suffering there right now? Well, each of them are going to have their hands full. We understand that. And it's not a simple solution. And in the political arena that they live in and we live in, no matter if you say one thing, people are going to be critics of that and one another. So it's such a complex issue. I think the most important thing either of them can do is to convene the individual organizations and politicians that are part of the solution and to develop a plan. This is a complex issue. It didn't happen overnight and it's going to take a long time and perhaps a multiple inter interdisciplinary approach to do a number of things. The most important thing for me is that people need to be safe safe to go to work and safe if they find themselves on the street. It isn't safe when somebody is so overdosed they don't know where they are and they're falling in front of vehicles. Or as already been noted, the drug activity and the, the, the variety of sexual assaults and prostitution that's going on yeah. is unbelievable. The Greater Boston we, Food Bank's parking lot is now a, a toilet. We it's have to leave. I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry so. to interrupt. Um, we're out of time, and we have to leave it there. But I'm glad that you got all of that in. Catherine sure. Amato, Domingos de Rosa, and Marla Smith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
That is going to do it for tonight, but do come back next week as we continue to explore the biggest issues of the mayoral race and the issue most Boston voters say could sway their final decision, schools and education. We'll look at the biggest concerns and where the candidates stand next Friday at 7 here on GBH2 and online at gbhnews.org. Thank you.